So this may go without saying, you probably know this, the Bible often tells people to do things whether they feel like doing them or not. In the Psalms, you find people feeling all sorts of things, all the feelings, from anger and sadness to ecstatic joy. But even in the Psalms that contain elements of anger, you still find people shouting out things like, praise the Lord. And the Psalms, they were, they still are public prayers. So when a psalmist says this, they're commanding everyone who is listening to praise the Lord. Not whether you feel like it or not, but praise the Lord. In fact, the Bible rarely correlates proper behavior with what you feel like doing. So we're told to love God and our neighbor. This is in the passage that Jenny read for us from Romans chapter 13. And there are no qualifiers for how you may be feeling about God and your neighbor when you're told to do this. We're commanded to repent for sin in different parts of Scripture. And we're not asked whether we feel like repenting or not. This is one of the things that I, I both like and dislike about the church calendar. It calls me to do things that are good for me, regardless of whether I feel like doing them. In Easter, I'm called to rejoice for an entire season to praise the God of resurrection who has achieved victory over death. And sometimes that's easy for me. Sometimes it's not. In Lent, I'm called, I'm called on to repent of my sin in a deeper and more ongoing way than I normally repent, honestly. In Epiphany, I'm called on to think about how my life is serving God's desire that his word go out to every tribe, tongue, and nation. I'm commanded to be a part of God's work, of his gospel, going out into all the world. And if I've forgotten about it, Epiphany comes around every year to remind me. And now in Advent, I'm called into a season of waiting. Of waiting with hope for God to break into my life and into the world in a new way. Now there, there are lots of good ways to grow in faith as a Christian. Bible studies, listening to sermons online. But it can be easy for us to get stuck doing the kinds of things that we like doing. <laughs> the versions of growth that we really prefer. And what I appreciate about the calendar is that of all these seasons I've mentioned, they're like pieces of a puzzle that together they make up a whole and mature Christian life. So there might be seasons that I like better than others, but I have to go through all of them. The joy of Easter, the repentance of Lent, the mission of Epiphany, and the waiting of Advent, these are all integral threads weaved together in the story of the Bible. And if you commit yourself to living out these seasons year after year, through the power of the Spirit, you will become a more wholehearted and full Christian, full human being. God will give that to you. Now in Advent, we are instructed to wait for God. To enter into this major thread throughout the biblical story where Israel is waiting for the Messiah to come. 
then the arrival of the Messiah, but then the first Christians who are waiting for the Messiah to return. And in the midst of their waiting for the Messiah to return, they are laboring for the Messiah. We're waiting in hope for the Lord Jesus Christ to come and restore us, to take away the rottenness that remains in all of us and in the world that we live in. Now, there are three ways that Christ comes. Three main ways. He comes in history as an infant born of Mary. He comes in power and in glory at the end of time. And he also comes now. In our intermediate waiting, he arrives in our lives. When we pray. When we love. When we mourn. In different moments in our lives, Christ arrives. He comes to us in our waiting and in our longing. So we're drawn in this season to rejoice and to give thanks for Christ's arrival in history the first time at Christmas and to look forward to his arrival at the end of time. But in the intermediate, we seek his arrival in our lives right now. We need him. We need his presence of love, his presence of assurance, and his presence of hope. We're suspended in a way right now. Suspended between now and our death or when Christ returns to renew us and renew the earth. And what do we hang on to while we're suspended in this place, this in-between? When work, family, and all other things fail to hold us up, what are we going to hold on to? G.K. Chesterton was a Christian journalist in England in the early 1900s, and he wrote about the artist uh, who painted the, the piece of art on the front of our worship guide. And he wrote about this particular piece of art, actually. He said that when you first look at this piece of art, you might think that it should be called despair instead of hope. It looks so bleak. Blindfolded an instrument with one string. But he says hope is the proper name. And then he says this, and I, I love it. I, I hope you love it too. There is something in man which is always apparently on the eve of disappearing, but never disappears. A string which is always stretched to snapping and yet never snaps. Chesterson is saying there's something about hope that stays alive within us. Chesterton actually said, there's no true pessimist in the world because all of us long for something, some hope. We're holding on, believing that there is something more. This is the nature of hope in God and in Jesus Christ. I think in the passages that we've heard this morning, there are two things specifically that God gives us for hope. One thing he gives us is vision of a future. Vision of a future. So you, you heard this beautiful vision from Isaiah 2 that Andrew read for us. In the latter days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the highest of the mountains. All people will flow to it. Zion will become the location of the United Nations and God will oversee it all. Weapons of war will be transformed into farm tools used to care for the land and for each other. 
It's a beautiful vision. But here's the very personal part of it that we didn't get to hear. When Isaiah receives this vision, everything around him is in chaos. Chapter 1 of Isaiah is all about the destruction that is happening around him. The land is being burned, raised, leveled. Their cities are being burned by these other nations. And those that were not burned were controlled by thieves, people in power who care nothing for their neighbor. Everything around Isaiah was like that string stretched to snapping, as Chesterton said. And in the midst of that, Isaiah receives this vision of an entirely different future. And this is the way that hope works with Jesus Christ. Uh, Scott reminded me last night of a word coined by uh, Tolkien, the author of The Lord of the Rings. And the word is eucatastrophe. Can you say that with me? Eucatastrophe. It's an important word. What it means is that there is a sudden turn of events at the end of a story which ensures the main character is not going to meet some terrible, impending, and very plausible and probable doom. Eucatastrophe <laughs> is a catastrophe turned good. So catastrophe, that's the bad. You means good. It's a catastrophe turned good. Turned better than good. Tolkien, uh, he said that the inc incarnation of Christ was the eucatastrophe of human history. Humanity is always trying to create new pathways to hell, new paths to destroy each other and to destroy the world around us. And in the midst of our doom, God became flesh. Flesh that seemed as if it were hopeless and helpless was taken on by God. Redeemed. And the resurrection, Tolkien said, was the eucatastrophe of the incarnation. We tried to ruin God's attempt at our redemption. We tried to kill the God who became flesh for us. But even that was turned good and turned better than good. His death became a labor of love and it became our forgiveness. Now the passage in Isaiah said that one day the mountain of the house of the Lord would be established as the highest of the mountains, that all nations would flow to it. Now we know that Christ became the temple or the house of the Lord. Christ is the Lord's house. And we know that Christ was crucified on a high hill. And we also know that from his cross, Christ has shown the nations the way to life. That all nations have flowed to the cross of Christ. And so Christians in all nations this morning worship the one who was crucified. Christ is the eucatastrophe of human history and for all of us. Because of Christ, all of us have an alternative future than the one that we would have created for ourselves. We are not doomed, and we would have been. The world itself is not doomed, and it would have been. But far from it, in Christ we've all become children of God when we believe in Him. Loved, 
fought for, forgiven, and cherished by God. And in Christ, the world itself is being renewed. What does God give us for hope? He gives us a vision of a future. Because of Christ's work for us, and because we are God's children, we should actually expect that these kind of catastrophic, turned good moments will happen in our lives. Moments where we are on the brink of disaster, in the midst of disaster, and somehow in prayer and in waiting for God, He shows us a future that we couldn't see. And He gives us a future that we couldn't see. What does God give us for hope? He gives us another future, vision of another future. Now, the, the second thing God gives us for hope, it's unusual. You wouldn't expect this to be a cause for hope, but it is. The second thing God gives us is he gives us commands. Now, I'm going to show you the commands, but before I do, I want to say this. God giving us commands is a reason for hope because God only gives commands because he thinks that he knows that we can obey them. It's a reason for hope because God only gives commands if he knows that we can walk with him in these commands. God is not a drill officer asking you to do things you absolutely cannot do, nor does he beat you down to keep you down. This is not God. Instead, God gives you his spirit so that you can obey him, and he gives you his love and his mercy so that when you don't, you can get back up and you can try again. Now let me show you an example of this. If you have your Bible, will you turn into Isaiah chapter 1? Isaiah chapter 1. And we're going to look at verse 18. Here's what Isaiah 1 verse 18 says. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel... You shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now God commands his people to do something here in Isaiah 1. Come, let us reason together. This is the command. Come, let's have a conversation. And then he makes them a promise after the command. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. They're, though they are like crimson, they shall become like wool. Now, the part, let us reason together, that part is very important. All of it's important, but that part's very important. This is God's way of kindly instructing us, inviting us to participate in His work in our lives. 
So the rest of the work that God's going to do, the whole part of though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. The, that work of making our sins as white as snow, like wool, that's going to be God's work. We can't do that. But God instructs us to come and to work with him in his work. Come, let's reason together, and here's what I will do for you. Now, I'm starting here because a lot of the commands that we see in our passages today are framed with this same phrase, let us. Let us. See you all looking around. Is everything, everything's okay out there, right? Is it just rain? Okay. Aren't you glad it's so warm in here? You're inside. <laughs> so a lot of these passages are framed by this, this phrase, let us. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 5, right after Isaiah 1. At the end of Isaiah's vision, we hear this. Come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Then Romans chapter 13, verse 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. What we're seeing here and in lots of other places in the Bible is that God does command us. He does. But much of the time, God's commands are expressed as, let us do this. In other words, you are never going to do something for God by yourself. God never asks you to do something for him by yourself. You're going to do it with the help of God's Spirit and with the help of the rest of the body of Christ. So what we see throughout the New Testament is Paul picking up on this language that God gives in the Old Testament. Let us do this together. And then Paul says, let us as a body do this with God. Let us. And when you fail, you know, when God calls you to do these things with him, to obey him, when you fail, remember what God says. Come, let's reason together. Even though your sins are like scarlet, in Christ they are as white as snow. Even though they're red like crimson, in Christ they're like wool. And so when we see God's commands in this light, they are a gift to give us hope. They're a way of living in the light even when we feel stretched. Like Chesterton said, stretched to the point of snapping. Christ comes into our lives now when we receive his commands and join him in an ongoing obedience. What are we called to do during the season of Advent? In what way are we called to obey God? Well, in Matthew 24, we're called again and again to watch. And then in, chapter, in Romans chapter 13, we're called to wake up. So I ask you, are you awake to Christ? In the season of Advent, 
we're challenged because the culture outside of here is ramping up. Life is only going to get crazier from this point until December 25th. Some of us are saddened because in this season, we remember the people in our lives who are not here. For some, this is a season that brings us closer to depression than it does to joy. So what's God calling us to do? He's calling us to slow down and to wake up. To sit with Him and to stay attuned to Him. And as we obey in this place of waiting, God will meet us with hope. We'll see the eucatastrophe happen in our own lives as Christ comes to us and gives us a vision again and reminds us that all is not lost, all is not hopeless, and God will be faithful to us. So how do we wait for God with hope? Well, we have this future vision from Christ. Our own personal catastrophes are turned to good in Christ, better than good. And we have God's commands to help us walk in the light. To wait for the day when the darkness of the world and our lives is flooded with God's light and everything is made well. It's in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.